Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is John Wood Jr. John is a national leader at Braver Angels, which is a grassroots organization dedicated to the work of political depolarization. He's also a writer for USA Today. He's a former vice chairman of the Republican Party of LA County and a former nominee for Congress. John and I talk about 2020 and the legacy of BLM. We talk about the emotional and psychological pull of wokeness. We talk about the status of the American dream. I talk about my experience as a kid switching from public school to private school. We talk about the cultural barriers to success for black and Hispanic kids. We talk about the similarities between original sin and white privilege and much more. I really enjoy this conversation. I hope you do too. So without further ado, John Wood Jr. Okay, John Wood Jr. Thanks for coming on my show, man. Oh yeah, well it's uh, it's a pleasure. Am I on your show or are you on my show? Maybe both. We'll have to. Maybe yeah, both. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> well, this will be a joint uh, a joint hosting in in both directions. Yeah. So. So we were just talking about the last time we saw each other was early 2020 at the 1776 project with Glenn Lowry and Bob Woodson, where Will Riley and we have uh, Will Riley. Carol Swain would have been Carol there. Carol Swain, yeah. And, and we were all joined around a rebuttal of the 1619 Project and, you know, trying to take part in a narrative that was less steeped in grievance and attributing everything, all modern ills to the legacy of slavery. And, uh, and so I hadn't thought about that in a while. And it, it occurs to me, it's been three years that it doesn't seem like it's been that long. Yeah, no, it's, it's remarkable. And of course, you know, the world turned upside down about three or four times in that space of, in that space of time, and, you know, many overlapping, um, circumstances and calamities and catastrophes. I mean, you know, we had the pandemic itself. We had, of course, the killing or murder of George Floyd. We had the summer of protest, you know, following that. Um, I think that must have been, you know, the greatest degree of sort of, um, you know, chaos in our streets, at least since the assassination of Dr. King in, in 68. Um, we have the 2020 election, uh, of course, which was wild just in and of itself. But then we had the whole sort of, you know, voter fraud uh, claim, the stolen election uh, uh, movement and all that culminating in January 6th and then the second impeachment of President Trump. And now, three years later, it looks like America's ready to do it all or less, at least as far as the Trump-Biden rematch is concerned and, you know, maybe some of the some surrounding uh, things. Um, yeah, man, but what are your feelings about the, you know, about the last three years, last, last time, since last time we saw each other? Yeah, I, I mean, 2020 was a big year for me. And the more it recedes into the rear view mirror, the more I feel some people want to forget about it. And I want to remember it because it was the single greatest year over year increase in the homicide rate in the past hundred years, according to Pew. And that didn't happen in Canada. UK didn't happen in any of our Western European peer countries or Australia. It only happened here. So it wasn't the pandemic. And I feel there is, you know, people want to sweep under the rug the fact that all of the anti-police 
rhetoric and policies led to an increase in violent crime that was almost entirely experienced by the black community. It, that, that homicide spike was not shared across all communities equally. It was, it was fairly concentrated. And it, it feels like someone asked me recently what I feel about BLM. And I listed some of the positive things BLM had done. For instance, almost no police ever got held accountable for almost anything before BLM, um, whether they killed a, a black kid or a white kid or like police just did not get punished. And now police do sometimes get punished. So that I put in the win column. But in, in the loss column is the, the greatest spike in homicide experienced by the black community possibly ever um, in terms of year over year increase. And I feel they're among, you know, your average person that supported the general vibe of the BLM moment does not know that and hasn't been made to account for that. So that's that's something I, I think about quite a lot. Yeah, right. Well, let's uh, let's pull on that thread a little bit, because you're you're doing something I think many people who at least don't follow you closely would not expect you to do, which is to point to some actual tangible good that came out of the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. And yet, of course, you know, pointing to the larger fact that, you know, on balance, a movement that was about saving black lives when you sort of connected to perhaps the defund police movement, the spike in homicides that you were pointing to during that period of time, you can say sort of, you know, led to the loss of, of black lives at some level of scale in a way that's tragic and heartbreaking and, and ironic. Here's my sentiment. I feel, I feel as you do, that ultimately the Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of anti-racism activism in general has counterproductive consequences in a number of ways. I think that there's a deep appeal, emotional appeal to Black Lives Matter, to movements for racial justice, because so many people in America, be they people of color or, or not, do feel that in some serious way, the legacy of racial persecution endures in American society. And, you know, we can get into sort of critical frameworks for you know, how we define white supremacy in society and so forth, and our institutions calibrated towards the, you know, oppression of African-Americans. But this sense that there's deep racial injustice in America that persists to the present moment, it's a funny thing because I feel like it requires deep parsing, but there's a raw emotion there that I actually find myself becoming more and more sympathetic towards in this sense. On the one hand, and you and I have talked along these lines in, in the past, but of course, time continues to, to move and we continue to sort of, you know, sort of develop in our understanding of, of things. I've always said, you know, if you're judging the black experience by me, there's very little to complain about. You know, American society has been very good to me. I mean, I grew up in an integrated community, in a community where I was more or less celebrated for the color of my skin, sort of liberal, progressive multiculturalism of Culver City, California. <laughs> where we are now, as a matter of fact. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm one of these people who I think uh, benefited from the mainstream integration of African-Americans into mainstream institutional life uh, post-civil rights movement, you know. Um, but, you know, I, I've put this basic sort of narrative to, you know, friends of ours, including, of course, you know, Professor Lowry and, and, and other folks. But I feel like, you know, you, you look at the broad sweep of American history 
for a grossly sort of disproportionately large segment of the black community, you know. And you can simplify it by sort of going from slavery to sort of Jim Crow terrorism and the absence of education and broad-based economic opportunities. You can look at, you know, policies of residential segregation, which went from the federal government to local law enforcement to, you know, real estate firms and so forth. You go into the harrowing sort of drama of the civil rights movement, you know, a la, you know, 1950s in 1960s and you can note tangible gains of course but then you know one and 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 those tangible gains i think made the american experience as i know it possible for me and millions of other african americans right but you know one thinks about the success of the voting rights act the civil rights act and so forth and one one remembers that these are social gains that really accrued to African-Americans in the South. And of course, Dr. King was leading the movement largely from the South. But by the time King came along, you know, most blacks were already living in big urban centers and outside of the rural South where, you know, segregation as it existed was more a matter of housing policy. It wasn't a matter of Jim Crow. Economic disparities were far more pronounced and maybe germane to their concerns. And so when King died, of course, he died in the midst of trying to lead this poor people's campaign to sort of remedy economic inequality in America. He was killed. You have the advent of... And people people forget that the, the full name of the March on Washington was the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. Yes, that is absolutely correct. And we do forget that. Um, you know, Dr. King is killed. As well as in his final book, the whole second chapter is a, as you know, a a long critique of the black power movement for not essentially for not focusing enough on class. And he he recommended that they change their name to power for poor people as opposed to black power. That's a very relevant point that I think will probably that, that I think we can probably pull forward to maybe where you and I come down in some of our critiques of, you know, Kendi and some other folks, but just to sort of play out the story a bit further, you know, yes, you have this major part of the black community that sort of integrates into, you know, uh, suburban America, mainstream institutions, college campuses, corporations into the middle class. But then, you know, as William Julius Wilson writes about, you know, you've got this desperately impoverished black underclass, right, which can't integrate into those institutions, which sees manufacturing jobs go overseas and in places like at least, you know, L.A. and whatnot, sort of insourcing of immigrant labor, dis- dislodging them from the agricultural economy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that becomes the large segment of black America that winds up being impacted by, you know, first heroin, then the crack cocaine epidemic, the rise of the bloods and crips, mass incarceration, and, you know, taking us to to the, you know, the riots in, in the early 90s and, and the uh, sweep of violence from about 19, what, 1980 to 1995 or so that's been matched by nothing until, I guess, very recently we've started to see an uptick again. But across that whole arc of American experience, I sometimes ask people, like, for, for that disproportionately large segment of the black community that you can, you know, politically correctly or incorrectly refer to as sort of this black underclass and it's millions and millions of, of people, right? When does the American dream ever show up? And when I think about it in that way, even if I think that the practical policy focused response of, you know, Black Lives Matter and many other folks, defund the police, et cetera, was not only sort of, you know, not well thought through, but, you know, wildly counterproductive to the actual interests of the very people that that movement sought to defend and uplift in many respects. The raw emotion of injustice, you know, the sense that there's just something dramatically wrong with the way in which society is structured as it pertains to the interest and welfare of, of at least very, very many 
African-Americans. You know, that's something I feel a bit, you know, especially the more I the more I look at certain things. And so I, I guess I put the question to you, Coleman. Am I am I going a little bit soft? Am I selling out a little bit or am I, you know, or is there is there a degree to which, you know, there's a larger story here that maybe some of us sometimes tend to miss as we celebrate the progress of America from King to Barack Obama and Oprah Winfrey and, you know, this this larger reality of an American experience that's been very good to you and me. Yeah. So I guess what I would say is, no, you haven't gone soft. It's it's important to to empathize with the raw emotion that people feel when they see the wealth disparity between the rich and the poor in this country and the racial dimension of that disparity uh, between blacks and whites. And I as well, I totally get why people see this and immediately feel that uh, this is that the sort of woke diagnosis of the country as fundamentally racist is spot on and that the woke policy prescriptions such as reparations and and so forth are the path forward. I get that. It is it's a very powerful emotional appeal. One thing I would say is when you ask where is the American dream for these people? There is something circular about that analysis because as 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 black people and most immigrant groups as well Basically, everyone started out with nothing, and uh, many were able to rise, right? And once they rise and achieve the American dream, well, then the people left behind are, by definition, the ones that that haven't. But the ones that rose, many of them didn't necessarily have more adva- ad- ad- inherent advantages than um, than those who didn't. And it's a it's a complicated problem, but I think it remains the case that America is perhaps the number one, certainly in the top five destinations for the black and brown migrants of the world. Either they're wrong about the opportunities they're, they're getting, the, the Nigerian and Jamaican and Pakistani and, and Indian immigrants who come here, they're either wrong about the opportunities that are available for them or they're not. And I think mostly they're not wrong. And that's not to minimize the problems of intergenerational entrenched poverty in the black community and white community as well. But it is to say we should not, we should be eager to find out what, what is going right in America such that the American dream was ever possible to begin with. Most places in, in the world have not had a, a, an analogous dream, right? The, there's the, no French dream. There's no the French dream. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and part of the reason for that is because I was about to make a bad joke about except maybe drinking wine and eating baguettes. Eating I, cheese, yeah. yeah eating lots I, of cheese. I would need to apologize for that later. So. <laughs> <laughs> French dream is drinking lots of wine, eating lots of cheese, and somehow never gaining weight. Yes, there you go. But most countries, uh, including most European countries, uh, most Asian countries, have been organ- organized around an ethnic group that all speak the same language, all have an identifiable, shared look uh, and ethnicity and culture. And the country has simply been a fence around an ethnicity. America has tried to do something different, which no place in the world really tried to do before it, which is to be a country not based around a single ethnicity, but based around an idea, which is the idea of the Constitution and, um, and the Founding Fathers and so forth, to be a democracy. And it took a, a long time to, and we are increasingly approximating what that goal is, but it has been remarkably successful insofar as the people of the world of all 
all colors have wanted to come here and been able to come here and have been able to move from poverty to affluence to such a degree we take for granted when um, you know a random person with nothing from Southeast Asia comes here and within a generation their child is at Harvard. Somehow no one bats an eye at that, but that's an incredibly profound story that most countries and systems are not able to achieve. So we should also consider that. Yeah, I agree with you entirely with respect to that master analysis of the character of American society and the reasons why people want to be here of absolutely all colors, right? I know why people, you know, sneeze uh, at the (laughs) description of America's uh, meritocracy, at least on the left, because even taking, you know, our racial history out of it, you can see how, you know, wealthy people are able to get their kids in as legacy applicants to, you know, top tier universities. Uh, Everything in life seems to be about social networking and who you know. And right, right, exactly. And we can point to sort of limitless, you know, examples of people being elevated who didn't seem to totally believe it. And yet I feel like the more you draw the experiment out over time, the more you see that folks who are willing to sort of work hard and, and apply themselves, you know, all things being equal, which maybe they never quite are, but nevertheless, that there are perhaps fewer fundamental barriers to social mobility in the United States of America for people who are willing to sort of buckle down and work hard. Ian Rowe, our, our, our dear mutual friend, of course, will, you know, talk about the, you know, the importance of fatherhood and religion and education, and entrepreneurialism, the sort of, you know, formula of factors that allow you to, uh, statistically speaking, almost inevitably sort of move into the middle middle class. You know, Larry Elder talks about sort of similar things. Um, I think that all those things are true of American society in ways that, you know, prove your point clearly. I think what's interesting for me to ponder, however, is I think that this way of understanding things shows that race as an absolutely determinative variable for where you land in American society is just woefully insufficient. You know, it's, it's, it's almost not even really a, a, a starting point for understanding what leads to success or failure in American life. On the other hand, I think that there's something meaningful to be said about the, different, the differing experience between a Nigerian immigrant coming to America who, you know, maybe doesn't come over with a lot of money, but comes over with a sense of possibility, maybe pre-existing sort of academic or entrepreneurial education or success, who's not really sort of mired in or bogged down by the social history of circumstances in the United States and comes here, you know, with a goal in mind. And if he encounters any prejudice or anything like that, you know, it's something that he's not likely to think about too much because one doesn't have a great sense of the expectations of other people's racial sensitivities when you're going into a new country. You're coming to make a new life for yourself. You know, you don't have sort of like, I don't think you're in a position to sort of say like, well, hey, other people should be looking at me this way or the other. And also almost by definition, you're going from a place you want, want to be less to a place you want to be more. So it's, it's almost inherently a positive framing on your experience because you're comparing it to something you're leaving on purpose. Yeah. Whatever the negatives are where you're showing up, you can always compare it to the the bad things you're leaving behind. right? Right. Which is not true if you're born here. It's not true if you're, it's not true if you're born here. I think what's also true is that whether you're whether you're talking about somebody who's immigrating from another, another country to, to this country who may have an accent and so forth, but isn't tied to this larger history, or somebody like me who grew up here, but grew up sort of thoroughly integrated into sort of mainstream social and institutional culture, there is a way in which 
we are living simply a very different black psychological experience, put the material dimensions aside for a moment, than folks who exist within sort of this, this, this core of the African-American lineage that's traveled these different epochs that I've, that I've mentioned. So, I mean, again, you go back in time, there's a bit of an off-ramp for some African-Americans, for many African-Americans, let me not minimize it, coming out of the 60s, right, where, you know, you do sort of integrate into these institutions and there's this larger celebration of that as a cultural phenomenon in, in, American, in American life. But one thing I've noticed is that many black people who are of sort of an anti-racist kind of, kind of bent, who, who might tend to sort of consciously or unconsciously echo the themes of, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates and even Max Kennedy and so forth, they'll, they'll, they'll talk about white people feeling uncomfortable around them by virtue of their being black, whether it's in the classroom or the boardroom or walking down the street. And for a while, when I was growing up, I used to not get that because I, I didn't experience that. But then, you know, one day I just sort of, I noticed some differences, you know, um, that I don't quite have the same dialect. I mean, I can code switch. I grew up code switching. I was one of those kids, you know, because I spent a lot of time in the hood growing up. I live in the hood now, South Los Angeles and whatnot. But my father was always adamant that I speak, quote, the King's English, right? That I speak like I was doing a telecast on the nightly, nightly news, right? Uh, I wasn't walking around baggy pants and so forth. I didn't have my, uh, my hair braided or cornrowed until I was 16 or 17. And when I did, I did notice that people looked at me a little bit differently. And so it occurs to me that when people say black, they don't just mean like the actual color of your skin, right? They're talking about things like dialect. They're talking about things like affect, things like body language, so on and so forth, you know? And uh, you, you, you put this brilliantly once you, you, you made the point that, and, and hopefully I'm not retroactively putting words in your mouth, but I seem to recall you making the point that part of what critical theorists sort of catch on to, which, which has a ring of truth to it, is this, is this reality that while on the one hand we might be tempted to think that institutional culture is neutral, the truth is, is all spaces, including the uh, institutional spaces, have something of an accent and that you don't always fit in with the accent that you bring with you. So from my vantage point, that's not a racial matter in principle, right? Because you can be any skin color. I am the skin color that I am. I am black. I never feel uncomfortable in white spaces. I I simply don't. But I grew up a certain way. Whereas other black folks, um, even if they are, you know, very educated and so forth, might feel a different sort of, sort of friction. And so, you know, in, in that sense, it, it gives me a little bit more perspective on how some folks, through no fault of their own, I think, may find themselves feeling like the spaces that are presented to them as being sort of neutral and universal and available to all Americans on the basis of merit and so forth are actually spaces that are somewhat rejecting of their identity. They might say humanity. And even if I think that's a dramatic term, they're feeling like they can't bring all of themselves into certain parts of American life as they exist now. And I'm just wondering if that one seems true to you and two, if it seems relevant to our understanding of the larger body of emotions surrounding our analysis of race in America. It does seem true to me. And I'll give you a personal example is, is when I went from fifth to sixth grade, I went from the public school in my town, town I grew up in was like 30% black to a private school outside of town, which was, you know, I think I was one of four black kids in an entering class of 60. And by ninth grade, I was the only black boy because the two others had left. So I went from like very, very normal place where it's very normal, unremarkable to be black to a place where like it's completely stood out to be black. Uh, And 
I remember, you know, the, the experience was going from one culture to another. It was very much a place with a different accent, the way that you say, instead of calling it the principal, you call it the headmaster. I was like, I felt like I was in some kind of Harry Potter movie and I, <laughs> and somehow other kids thought it was normal because maybe they had come from similar private schools, but I was very put off by the whole thing. It took me, I don't know how long, but it took me time to, you know, it's like getting in a pool and it's too cold and it takes time to warm up and for you to feel like you really belong there. I remember that feeling distinctly. And as you say, in principle, it's not racial. I'm sure that there were white kids that felt the same way because they, this environment was as shocking to them. But in practice, I'm sure all the black kids felt that way, right? So it is uh, natural for people to interpret it in a racial way. Although I'm not sure that I actually did at the time. I was a kid. Sometimes kids don't, are less likely to make racial connections in that way, which I think is healthy, frankly. But yeah, I, to I totally think that that, you know, in a way experiencing the discomfort at that age meant I don't experience it as an adult, which is not true of a lot of black people. When black people enter white spaces, a lot of them that aren't used to it, they are more likely to feel hostility. Uh, they're probably more likely to experience real and imagined hostility. And that is relevant. The one point I would make is it's also relevant to immigrant communities that come into the country new country sometimes as adults speaking accents not even speaking or not even speaking the language fully whatever level of cultural distance exists between black americans and white americans i would say probably more cultural existence distance exists between your average immigrant to the country and so in that way i don't think that we can we can say this is the barrier this is this is going to be a barrier that's going to stop us i think we have to understand that that is there and institution should be aware of that and try to have some more consideration for people um, who, who feel at odds with the environment a little bit. But, but I would hate for anyone to use that as an excuse for failure. Well, I, look, I, I agree with you again entirely on that point, but, but let's, let me say a little something about the barriers there in relation to that point, because I think what I see with respect to sort of this experience of what we're calling the black experience, again, for so many folks, is that there, there is actually sort of a cross-class phenomenon, uh, uh, or at least maybe I should say continuum of experiences in much of the black community, which sort of links in a narrative, in a narrative thread, um, the sort of cultural frictional uh, issues that we're talking about here to the real material deprivation that I think it's fair to say even if I myself would not say that it is deliberately sort of like racially reinforced, but nevertheless is structurally reinforced for sort of this underclass of black Americans. And so this, this, is, this is what I mean. I think that you've got, uh, to put it simply, a lot of black folks, maybe middle class, have a reasonable amount of education, but who are, you know, coming out of black communities who, you know, may dress a certain way, talk a certain way, and just have a certain sort of social and cultural orientation, feeling themselves not completely at home in white America, to put it bluntly, or in mainstream America, let's say. And, you know, it, I, would, I would say that that's something of a first world problem, which doesn't mean it's not a problem. It is a problem. But I think that what 
what makes it significant in the context of the larger narrative is that you can tie that to this sort of structural reality wherein you have this black underclass that, again, has gone from slavery to mass incarceration and, uh, you know, Rodney King onto George Floyd and so forth, for, for many really without great relief. I mean, there's a way in which I would argue life really was worse for many African-Americans in the 70s and 80s and at least up to mid 90s than it was in the 60s and 50s. And, you know, there's different reasons for that. I, you know, some of this mass incarceration, the drug epidemic, the gang violence, a lot of it was that. I also sympathize as someone who's more conservative himself with sort of the, you know, bit of the indictment of the welfare state and culture of sort of politically motivated uh, dependency that was sort of foisted upon the black community. And I'm always a little bit curious to get your, your take on that piece. But I think that what happens is, is that sort of the continuum of experiences there, where on the one hand, even privileged black folks feel kind of like socially, you know, somewhat, somewhat alienated all the way to sort of this multi-generational cohort of African-Americans who are just entrenched in poverty and violence and in failing, you know, schools and community institutions, et cetera. That sort of allows many folks to say, well, look, the whole picture is racist because I can point to it uh, for sort of this big mass of black people who are poor. And I can point to it for black people who on the face of it have succeeded, but who are never really going to be looked at as equals in, in white America. Now, again, like that's, that's not exactly my my analysis. And it's also not my experience in terms of my own personal day to day life. But I feel like many of us miss that whole picture in terms of why you know, why, why the BLM narrative is persuasive, if that makes some sense. To me, it feels, feels less rational than the gloss that you are giving it. I don't, I think that tribalism is a deep instinct and that tribalism becomes easier when there is a skin color difference between groups. So I think historically, many immigrant groups have faced vicious discrimination in this country from the Irish to the, to the Italians and you can go back and look at the no Irish need apply signs and, and all of that if you, if you doubt or are unaware of the depth of prejudice against those groups. The one difference besides slavery, in some sense, the equally important difference is that black people are black. And the, the ease of discriminating and the ease, the, the difficulty of actually integrating populations through intermarriage and, and that has made the black-white distinction much more hard and, and durable over time than the Irish-English-Italian distinctions. Those have become more blended, I think, over time and therefore less important as social realities because you can't necessarily look at someone anymore and pick them apart as a white eth ethnicity. And this is one thing that Frederick Douglass was wrong about. He thought that by now, black people and white people would fully have intermarried and intermixed so that everyone would be just kind of a a pleasant shade of light brown and nobody would care. Everybody would look like me, was that the idea of me or you? Yeah, and as brilliant as he was, that was one of the major things that he got wrong. He underestimated the durability and importance of just having a different look in maintaining separate, to some degree segregated communities over a very long expanse um, of time. And so that tribalism... I think for black Americans becomes easier because we look identifiably different and racism also becomes easier going in both directions because we look identifiably different. And I think that it is mostly a, a deep kind of need hardwired into us by evolution, essentially, 
that has that we perpetuate generation after generation by the way in which we talk about race. So this shared story that you're talking about, which unites, you know, Barack Obama with the the poorest black kid growing up in the hood, that's the story we tell is a matter of our choice. It's not a pre-scripted narrative that just exists out there as a fact. I think we are continually shaping what that story is by how we talk about race and the history of the United States. To the extent we talk about it as merely a history of black people suffering at the hands of white people and being thwarted at every turn and being unable to move past barriers that are set up for us, I think we create a more self-fulfilling prophecy as opposed to a narrative of, of uplift and a narrative which acknowledges the injustices while focusing on how far we have come and how far we can still go. I don't disagree with you. I do want to make a point to sort of challenge you to recognize a contextual distinction in a philosophical kind of frame. And this is what I mean. I think that when we say that it is our choice, whether or not we want to remain locked in this inherited narrative or sort of expand our capacity for appreciating the nuances of reality such that we're able to see how it is we can actually progress towards the lives we want to live in spite of the history that comes behind us. I fully agree with you, but I think that sometimes, I think that actually almost all the time, when we have these conversations, we can sort of fail to appreciate human beings as operating in sort of, you know, one of two psychological modes at any given moment when we're analyzing a social reality. On the one hand, there's kind of the frame of, of, of personal agency, which says that I have the power to change how I think about things so as to overcome them. And that is rational and true and empowering. And it's, it's where I focus, you know, sort of my, uh, my sympathetic energies in terms of what I want to see. You know, this is why I'm a big fan of, you know, not just yours, but, you know, uh, you know Bob Woods and so many of our mutual friends. On the other hand, I think that recognizing that human beings have that capacity as a matter of kind of like in the right circumstances, flipping that switch in their mind to allow them to excel, is to sort of, it, it, it can at least, it, it can at least be something that also exists alongside a lack of appreciation of the fact that human beings on some level, especially when you start to look at them at scale, now, we really do exist in a causal chain of events, right? Material, you know, you, you, you flick one domino, it hits the others, they, they, they fall. That's a material sort of causal chain. But psychology isn't really any different, I would argue. You know, you take the particular experience of this group of people in this country, you go through that whole history I laid out. It only, it only makes sense that the grievances that people feel would be as powerful as, as they are, and that people would feel trapped in that reality. Now, there are different ways in which you can show people a, another way of looking at things. I think that on the lazy level of superficial politics, and I'm not at all accusing you of this, I mean, you and I actually you know, work with and support groups that are on the ground showing people another way to live and another way to sort of see things. But as an indictment of our broader political culture, there's a way in which, you know, 
many, many people, many, many influential commentators are content to sort of say like, hey, you know, you know, Barack Obama did it. Oprah Winfrey did it. Michael Jordan did it. Why can't you do it, too? You know, your whole worldview is irrational on the basis of, you know, these anecdotes of success or these, you know, these these you know, exceptions or other patterns that we can point to. And I think what I'm saying is that for those of us who want to sort of open the psychological space for people to sort of transcend what they feel to be the limitations of their circumstances, I do think it's important to deeply empathize sort of with, I mean, people hate this term, you know, the lived experience, life experience, personal experience, what have you, with the actual experience of people and the histories that they trail behind them, rather than doing what I see a lot of people, not yourself, but what I see a lot of people is doing, which is to say, let's dismiss everything that happened yesterday, whether explicitly or implicitly, because it doesn't matter. We should just be looking forward, you know? I feel like that's actually a problem with the racial conversation. And it gives me a little bit of sympathy with folks who want to dwell on history a bit with, you know, people who poured their passion into the 1619 project. Many of these, you know, brilliant folks, whether I agree with them on everything or not, because I understand why they feel like that history needs to be more fully told. My criticism for them is that they, they then get locked in to a status quo of looking at things, which says that therefore nothing better is ever possible. But I do think a lot of times we go too far in the other direction by not fully empathizing and acknowledging some of the deeper, deeper currents in people's experience, both contemporaneously and historically, you know, as a means of actually reaching them. I struggle with this. I acknowledge you're pointing to a real paradox, which is that we are all the last domino in a chain of causation that stretches back to the Big Bang, even, you know, and we, we and none of us is the author of our own selves or our own impulses or our own life circumstances or our own genes. At the same time, I don't know a single healthy, successful, happy person that operates in that frame of mind. Every happy, successful person I know acts as if they are the author of themselves. So this is just a straight up paradox. There is a truth that I acknowledge as a scientifically oriented person that some level it's luck all the way down. It's genetic luck, it's environmental luck, it's your parents, the luck of your parents, your, your, the luck of your neighborhood, the luck of your schooling. On the other hand, if you go through life that way, uh, you, will, you are harming yourself by, by dwelling on all of the short sticks that you drew, right? I think that's just a fact. And so is there a way to, I feel sim- some sympathy with the people that want to maybe minimize is, is, is the wrong word, but really tell young people, no one is coming to save you. No one is coming to fix your past. No one is going to, you know, you may not get closure about some things. You should try to understand yourself and therapy can be a good tool. But beyond a certain basic level of acknowledging your own personal past and the ways in which you were victimized, going deep into the well of grievance is not a good strategy for becoming happy. I've never seen it work once. I've never seen someone that was miserable or depressed or unsuccessful or whatever. And then after years of deep meditation about their past victimization and traumas, emerged out the other side of it, a happy, successful person. What I have seen is people who were far too focused on the way they've, the ways they've been victimized and then eventually grew 
to pity themselves less, despite very real things in their past they could pity about, that grew to pity themselves less and ended up happy as a result. That I've seen over and over again. So how do I give people honest advice um, without lying about what I know to be true, which is this, the fact that we are all products of luck some level? Yeah. I mean, of course, you're making, you're making a powerful point, but you, you, you framed it as, you know, I've never seen anybody dwell on their victimization and actually, you know, sort of progress into a happy, a happy life. I do hear you on that. I do feel like in some sense, you know, <laughs> now you can say that this is because they're capitalizing on the very grievance industry that, you know, that they're reinforcing. You, you, you could make that argument, but I mean, you know, and maybe he wasn't a happy man either, but I can jump to Dick Gregory or, you know, or even Nicole Hannah-Jones or any number of other folks. So, you know, in, uh, and then, you know, people who, who, who are not public intellectuals who are focused on the subject matter, but who do carry some of that chip on their shoulders with respect to sort of the larger, you know, historical and in their view, perhaps, you know, unjust contemporary reality of American society. Who still have made it incredibly far in government or business or any? In any... a way, they're the Michael Jordans of the grievance industry, right? There is a there's an upper crust of people that can be very successful by mining the grievances of the past deeply. That doesn't suggest that your average Joe, by going down that road and that mindset, both in their personal lives and with respect to their racial identity, is going to move forward as a result. But I think that the counterpoint that I would put to that is how easy is it for the average Joe to simply sort of, you know, overcome, you know, a sense of victimization in favor of agency in the first place. I mean, I agree with you that I see it all over the place. Um, I see both of those things all over the place, but that's just because the the sample size is so large, you know, or the population is so large. You can, you can find data points that stretch on endlessly in all directions. And yet those data points don't necessarily paint even most of the picture of what's actually, what's actually going on. I think that, you know, the, and there's so many other variables here that we tend not to talk about, like just, just the differences in individual psychology and so forth. You can have one person who's born into a group that generally has a certain dispositions. This person has another disposition and they're more resilient to certain, to certain, you know, psychological traps and they have more, more outgoing, they're more optimistic and so forth. And, and this, these are just factors that have nothing much to do with the circumstances that person was born into, but facilitates their, their adapt, their adopting to them. But I think that the thing that I'm concerned about is how do we most effectively, most empoweringly communicate with people at scale, you know? Now this, interestingly enough, feels like a potentially reasonable place to segue into the conversation we were talking before about having on uh, religion, <laughs> you know, and, and these sort of currents in society. Because I'll, I'll tell you where I put a bit of, or I put some, some hope, although I may also be merely revealing my own short-sighted biases. I tend to think that, and here I think I reveal myself to be maybe both to the left and to the right of you simultaneously in some sense. I tend to feel that there's a way in which what society has lost, even as we refer to anti-racism and John McWhorter's analysis as a religion and so on and so forth, is a narrative which in a sense equalizes human standing across the board by pointing out the fact that we are all fallen. We are all born in sin, right? And that whatever our advantages in a worldly or disadvantages in a worldly context are, there's this initial sort of project and struggle within the human breast to overcome our own intrinsic corruption 
to be able to actually love each other well and treat each other well as a means of mutual uplift whereby we can actually become better tomorrow than we were, you know, yesterday and today. And that this is the character of human existence and that there's some undercurrent of, there's some undercurrent of perhaps divine benevolence that sort of creates a pathway towards that reality if we were willing to believe in it, you know, and follow it. I feel like the power of that, of that Christian narrative, and, and I think that there are other spiritual narratives which reinforce you know, similar themes, given the United States of America's historic relationship to Christianity and my own, I, I focus on that. But I feel like there is power in that, that should we find ourselves, you know, uh, reacquainted with it, perhaps presents a bit of a pathway whereby we can actually be inclined towards understanding and forgiveness to folks who, whether we fairly or unfairly, look at as either being the agents of our disadvantage or the beneficiaries of our disadvantage. I think that there is power in that point of view and in that narrative which can point us towards reflecting on ourselves and how we can work within ourselves to make ourselves better people as opposed to focusing all our energies or, or too much of our energies on condemning the structural sort of, you know, inadequacies of, of society, but thinking nothing about how we comport ourselves, sort of like, you know, I'm, you know, for well and fair for me to go on and loot a store because, you know, because, you know, because of slavery and, you know, institutional racism and so forth. That's a flippant example. But, but that, you know, part of what we lose, what we've lost in the modern age is that spiritual grounding in our relationship with the idea that we're all flawed, but that that gives us something in common with the worst of us, right? That we can't therefore judge one another in personal terms, but we also are all capable of redemption. And so there's a basis for our believing in the goodness of one another and ourselves, right? I feel like the, the absence of that is part of what makes it so difficult for us to find a path forward towards meaningful reconciliation. So Christianity has declined in our society at the same time that wokeness has risen. So you might ask, is that a coincidence? Um, I, I don't think that it is, especially given how similar certain aspects of wokeness are to Christianity. So consider the concept of original sin. We are, we are born fallen and flawed inherently. There's nothing we can do about that. But we can follow the program of of Jesus Christ and so long as we do that sort of for the rest of our lives we we if not can be cured then we can at least be treating our inner flaw right even though we can never fully get rid of it very similar to the concept of white privilege if you're white you are born racist and with white privilege this is what d'angelo says and you can't get rid of it ever but if you follow the program of anti-racism, you can at least treat it, right? And, and uh, as, as, uh, as Christopher Hitchens used to put it somewhat derisively, you were created sick and commanded to be well, right? <laughs> Clearly, there's something appealing about that sort of thing to the human psyche, or else original sin would not have been such a powerful concept for people. We all feel that we are kind of flawed and imperfect and we hate certain aspects of ourselves. So it's nice to be told that God put that sickness there and he, he knows it's there and he has some thoughts about how you might address it, right? Interesting thing about wokeness is that it has original sin for white people, but it doesn't have original sin for black people 
or people of color in general. In that sense, it really is, as a religion, it, it works best perhaps for white people because they have that original sin-shaped hole that can get filled by white privilege, but there's no analog for people of color or for black people. There's actually a reason for them to look within. Yes. In other words, right? Yes. Do the work, so to speak. Yes. And they get that human experience through the religion of wokeness. But for people of color, there's no analog. There's no reason to look within. There's only ever reason to point to society and say, it's wrong. We are, we are flawless, but society is flawed, essentially. Which is, and so Christianity is, you know, help useful in that it has that narrative for everybody, which I think is, makes it more appealing to me. Of course, I don't think it's true and I'm not a religious person. I wasn't raised with any religion. I'm, I'm an atheist in that sense, but I think there are good aspects to religion and that's one of them. And people often like to forget that Martin Luther King was a Christian and that Christianity was one of the major pillars of his message. We like to, I think, frankly, secular liberals like to forget that aspect because it just doesn't resonate with us. We don't really hear it. So we like to quote the other parts of him and forget that he was deeply Christian and that Christianity was, it was not simply, a, at least I would allege, it was not simply a language, a way of speaking for him. It was really believed and, and a backbone of his uh, project. Yes. Oh, and, and I'm glad that you, you said that. Maybe we can, maybe we can end on this, on this point here, because even as I say Christianity, I, I say this very mindful of the fact that that's one term that means a million different things, but it's the Kingian sort of treatment of that, particularly in a social context, which I think is, is most reflective uh, as a historical precedent, certainly any recent historical precedent for what it is I'm trying to articulate here, because, you know, you could have a Christianity which is rooted in sheer conformity to dogma, right? It's like, let's just make sure that, you know, let's make sure that you're in church every Sunday and that, you know, you're not gay, or if you do, that you don't act on that impulse and that, you know, maybe you you politicize it, you know, you got to vote the right way, the candidate who's, you know, seeking these these policy outcomes, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But King was about the transformational power, the socially transformative power of love as a spiritual force, which he saw as embodied in Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and also exemplified in Gandhi's, you know, methodology and the Indian independence movement and so forth. And of course, Gandhi was not a Christian, but King referred to that power as Christian love, right? And, and, and that's what I'm getting at. I do think that, you know, maybe one day you and I will have the opportunity to talk a bit about sort of the pure roots of, you know, some of these issues, you know, uh, religion and, you know, what is the character of reality? Do we or don't we live in an ordered universe? Is moral truth a mere subjective uh, product of man's fancy or is it reflected in something greater in the architecture of, 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 of nature? But putting all that aside, um, yes, fully embodying and exemplifying love and goodwill as an ethos that allows you to not be blind to structural uh, circumstances in society and to the consequences of history, but at the same time roots you in an understanding of the fact that on some level we are all equal because we are all flawed and have a moral obligation to ourselves as well as each other to love one another so that we might better love ourselves, right? That this sets the stage uh, for our graduating towards what Dr. King referred to as the beloved community, right? And, you know, I think whether you take it as literal or metaphorical, I feel like 
part of why King still remains, even in an age where everybody else, even among historical figures, has been canceled and so forth. You know, I'm being I'm exaggerating a little bit, but King, perhaps almost alone, even more than Lincoln, um, you know, retains sort of a universal moral credibility. And maybe that doesn't last, but it, it, but if it has lasted, and if it does last, I think it's because that movement wasn't just King, of course, did so much. You see it in the way we revere John Lewis, did so much to embody that uh, Christ-like way of being, you know. And I think it gives people hope for the idea that you can live in an unjust society or an unequal society with perhaps an unjust history in many respects and still look forward to a positive reconciliation with folks uh, with whom you find yourself at odds in the present moment. King used to say, in Christ, there is neither Greek nor Jew, black nor white bond nor free. And I struggle to think of any analogous claim a politician or leader can make today that would give people goosebumps while communicating the same message of common humanity. I can't think of one, right? So that was something he was able to say because there was a common Christian belief between black people and white people and between white people in different parts of the country and so forth. And most of the things a politician might say today, today in that vein might ring hollow to people. They, certainly younger people might ring hollow. What could they say? We're all American. We're all proud to be American. Well, I don't know. People have different feelings about that. And or what, you know, we're all, there's only one race, the human race. Well, I think the University of California said that's a microaggression mm-hmm. in 2015, right? Mm-hmm. So, and you can't really say in Christ, there's neither bond nor free because people aren't Christian anymore. I mean, you know, people on the left aren't Christian, largely. So that wouldn't resonate in a bipartisan way. So we are, yeah, I think we we have lost a, a language with, with, with which to talk about common humanity and what, it, what goes beneath the skin. And so consequently, we've seen people more open to the divisive and the tribal. Well, that leaves us with some hard questions to answer in terms of how we move forward with the project to ultimately arrive at a greater reconciliation in American life. I am hopeful that somehow or other we can, but we'll have to leave some of those answers for for the next conversation. All right. Only news. Thanks, Sean. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.